It's time once again for another episode of All That's Jazz, the podcast that explores everything in the world of jazz, including artist profiles, the next generation, educators, festivals, producers, venues, photographers, media, and a whole lot more. And here now is your host, Alan Scott. Hello and welcome to another episode of All That's Jazz. Today our guest is a jazz radio host at WBGO Public Radio from the jazz capital of the world. And on Twitter, she's known as Global Jazz Queen. Our guest is Monifa Brown. Monifa, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for inviting me. I've been looking forward to this. Your show is called Saturday Afternoon Jazz. Yeah, a very original and creative name. But we do our best with it. Um, So I'm on every Saturday. I've done this show, I think next year will be my 25th anniversary. So when I started, I like to say I was the youngest kid on the block. Now that's not so true anymore. But I was really a kid when I started at the station. And I've kind of grown with the show. So it's been a real pleasure. And I like to think of it as a privilege, really. I started off at Temple University at WRTI, which um, was a jazz station for decades before they kind of had a split format of jazz and classical. But I had a real opportunity to learn the inner workings of radio as a student. And I used to record all my shows on cassette for my dad. And I think of each show really as a tribute to my father, who is no longer here with us. But each show is kind of my way of connecting with him and keeping this gift of jazz that he gave me alive. And I was going to ask you, by the way, that's a a wonderful tribute to your father to be able to dedicate each program to him, and that creates a wonderful legacy for anybody that gives us an influence. Did you have influences from your mom as well in regards to jazz? Absolutely. Um, My mom's a big jazz fan, a big Nina Simone fan, and... Both my parents would take me to all the clubs as a kid. So music was always playing in my house. And then um, going to school in the village as a kid, where there were so many great clubs like Sweet Basil, which is no longer there, and the Village Vanguard and the Village Gate. So I would often accompany my parents to these clubs as a kid, getting a front row seat. So my mom is a huge advocate of the music, and she listens to my show every week and will send me texts and comment about the show. So definitely the both of my parents. And my dad, if we would go to a club and they'd say no kids were allowed, he was the kind of guy who would stand there and fight with them until I could get in the club. And of course, jazz is not necessarily relegated or simply a music set aside for adults anyway. There's no reason why we shouldn't have kids involved in the music and especially at an early age. And that's why there's so many jazz education programs, too, to continue this music and to keep it alive. Because I think you and I both know that that's very, very important. It is. It's really the only way to perpetuate and ensure that the art form is going to continue. And I think the lack of popularity stems from the fact that the music isn't as accessible to younger people in the way that it should be. So if you introduce the world of jazz to someone, you open up this whole new universe that kind of indoctrinate a whole new generation of jazz fans. I always like to say, introduce someone you love to the gift of jazz. It's the gift that keeps on giving back. And it really is. I really see this music as a gift which has saved my life on numerous occasions. I have an 11-year-old son, 
and I am definitely making it one of my priorities to make sure that he knows about this music. He's engaged with this music so that, in a way, it's like paying it forward. And that's kind of what we have to do to keep spreading the art form. It's especially important to have our children see live music as well, not just hear it uh, on the radio or uh, watch uh, a televised concert, but instead actually go to a venue and and hear that person. For yourself, uh, I think somewhere in your uh, bio information, you talked about how your parents had taken you to a Miles Davis show. Yeah, that was just transformational. I mean, I don't remember if it was spring or summer, and I was in elementary school, and it was a concert on the pier. So the setting itself um, was so beautiful to be on the water. And then Miles comes out, and he's wearing this green satin cap, and I was just captivated. I mean, it was like magic. There's no other way to describe it. It was pure magic. And I remember going away to camp that summer and begging my parents to get me a green satin cap like the one he wore. And so I ended up wearing this cap all summer until, like, the brim fell off. (laughs) But, I mean, that was the first time I really fell in love. You know, my parents had played Miles in the house all the time, but you're right. There's nothing like having all the senses awakened to a live performance, like Charles Mingus, let my children hear music, live music, not noise, you know. That experience, there's nothing like it. It's like, you know, reading a book and then seeing it on stage. It's just a whole other dimension. And we live in such a visual world, too. And the younger generation is exposed to experiencing things on a multitude of levels, right? So how do you reach them when jazz is not visually ready or available for young people to see? So to go out and see, wow, this person looks like me, or wow, I like what this person is doing, or I like the way they look, or I like the way anything can be awakened by seeing it live. That experience, there's nothing like it. So I agree with you. The experience of taking young people out to hear music is, there's nothing like it. There are some of those profound elements that make you think about it, or it brings back that memory, like a green cap. I'm sure every time you see one now, you think of Miles Davis. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, Miles is magic. I fast forward, that wasn't my first encounter. I had another encounter with Miles. This time in high school, I was going to music and art. And for some reason, I thought, hey, I had some friends um, who knew someone else who was performing, and so we were able to get backstage at Lincoln Center. And for some crazy reason, I thought, hey, I'll just go backstage and say hi to Miles. I would never do this nowadays. (laughs) Mm. But somehow I snuck backstage, and I actually got to his dressing room. He was practicing, and he turned around, and our eyes met. And then he said, get out of here, kid. And he slammed the door, and that was the end of my almost meeting Miles face-to-face encounter. Well, that, that's a great story. <laughs> and you, you even sound somewhat like him. That's a great imitation. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'll never forget that. I was so close, but yet so far away. I don't know what I was thinking. Well, but at least you got that far. <laughs> you you broke into the inner sanctum. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, uh, that was something else. But sometimes it's like anything in life, unless you take a risk or take a chance, you'll never know the the benefit uh, or what you may have lost. That's true. That's true. So when you are working on uh, your show at WBGO, which is Saturday Afternoon Jazz, and uh, for our listeners, uh, 
you really should check it out. It's it's four solid hours of incredible music. I, I'm amazed at maybe some of the planning that goes into each of your shows. It seems like you have it fairly well laid out in terms of a playlist, but like anybody in jazz radio, sometimes it, it works best on the fly or you change at the last moment and say, eh, I don't like the flow or I don't like this direction. I'm going to shift gears. What, uh, what's your sort of planning process for a show, especially with a four-hour show? I think the whole week I'm listening to music um, just as I go on in my daily life, um, playing music, checking out new stuff. I like to read a lot of articles, so I might check out some of the jazz books online. I love to read interviews, um, and I'm really interested in the spiritual connection with jazz, and so I'm kind of keyed into trying to find artists who talk about how their spirituality comes through in their music, so I'm constantly on the lookout for connections with that. So, you know, from listening all week, I like to check out what's going on on social media, what people are talking about, what artists are talking about, or what they're posting. And then I kind of come up with a template, um, sometimes also thinking about who's celebrating a birthday this week, or what happened in jazz history this week, and come up with kind of a blueprint for what I want to do. But you are right that in the moment of a show, sometimes you might change trajectory or switch the order of something because you play something and you're like, wow, this song would sound so good after that, or, you know what, this song has the same theme, or something's happening to make you kind of change your direction while you're immersed in the music. But I definitely like to have some kind of format or template. I'm kind of an organizer, so I like to be organized going into a situation, but it is nice to have the liberty and have the spirit of jazz to be able to improvise somewhat as you go along. So tell me about your use of social media when you do your shows, because I started following you and listening, and then I saw that even in the moment of your show, you're on Twitter and engaging with your audience. Yeah, I love that. I mean, in the old days, you know, the studio phone would be ringing a lot, and you'd be interactive and and doing that. And, um, And speaking of that, just one quick story, I used to have a guy who would always call the studio and he'd say, Sonny Rollins for president, and then he'd hang up the phone. So that was one of my favorite regular phone calls. Um, But I do miss, you know, picking up the phone as much. Now most of my interaction is, you know, online, either emails. But with Twitter, I happen to like that format more than Facebook. And I don't do Instagram, but I love doing Twitter. It's just a very creative way, you know, to get your messaging out. And like I said, I love to share stories behind the songs I'm playing or something profound that the artist said and, you know, visuals um, to go along with that. So I try to post things that represent the playlist and the spirit of the show that I'm programming. I will mention, you know, kind of now things are slightly different um, with um, COVID-19 and the way we're programming. I would be usually a lot heavier during my show and posting a lot more, but because of the way things are structured now and and the recording of stuff, I'm not doing as much. So now, usually I do it in as I go along, but now I'm kind of sometimes at the beginning of my show or in the middle of my show, unleashing a whole bunch of things that correlate to what I'm playing. But yeah, I love that, and I love interacting with different people. You hear from people all around the world with what they're doing, and it's like this one moment in time, no matter what's going on, and especially now where 
everyone is, you know, self-isolating and in their own worlds, I really feel like the role that this music plays in uniting us is so vital and so important. And this beautiful music connects all of us, no matter where we are physically. And it speaks to all of us in a way that unites us. So I like using the social media as another dimension to how we can connect with one another, particularly during this time. And I think that's extremely well said, Manifa, because right now it's nice to know, first of all, that we're having that connection with a fan, with a listener, et cetera, and to have it be in real time, I think is really important because this music, uh, jazz, is so emotional in so many ways and when you feel like you're reaching someone and you're touching them in uh, their heart or mind in some way, uh, what, a, what a profound experience that is. No, it really is. I also think back when I went to college, I actually went for music therapy. So music therapy with a concentration in classical voice. And I truly believe that the music is a healing force. And using the music as a way to connect and heal people, I think very much in terms of going back to your question about programming, to try to program music that in a way is healing, that in a way is joyous, that in a way is spiritually grounding. So that's really important in terms of the programming aspect and what the goal is with that. To me, it's not just picking a song for some arbitrary reason, but each song really does fit together like a piece of a puzzle. And the bigger goal is, I like to say, to uplift one note at a time. And that's that's really the agenda. Yes, it's to have fun, but it's also with this larger goal of bringing people together and, and some form of music therapy. Well, that's important as well as not only being healing, Uh, having that emotional connection. But uh, I've talked to a number of people recently during this uh, pandemic, and I've heard this over and over again from musicians and people that are in the business that it's important that maybe they're also giving a little bit of hope to the people that are listening. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think there's so many pillars of the music who have always thought that way. I found this great quote by Ornette Coleman where he says, I don't try to please when I play, I try to cure. Or you think of John Coltrane saying, my music is the spiritual expression of what I am, my faith, my knowledge, my being. That this music, and Charles Lloyd talks a lot about that, that this music is an offering. And there's so many musicians who see the music as a gift. Yes, it's music that's coming forth from them, but it's music that's coming from a higher calling. So it's like they're almost a vessel and being open to some divine source that flows through them. And I think that that is really critically important, especially when I even uh, was thinking, well, geez, you know, we're we're spinning totally out of control when this pandemic started, (laughs) Uh, especially uh, in the world of jazz, we started losing some of those pillars of jazz music one right after the other. And it's like, when is this going to stop? Yeah, it's been devastating, Um, and there's a whole generation of living jazz icons that is getting smaller and smaller, Um, which also brings me to another point. I'm definitely 
of the mindset that we need to do our due diligence in paying homage to the living icons of this music while they're here. You know, so much happens when people aren't here and people want to pay homage. But it's better to get your roses when you're here. So I also see my show as an opportunity to pay homage to so many people who have shaped my life and who continually feed the world with their positivity and their artistry and their humanity. And if there's a way to pay tribute to people now, that's when it should be done. Absolutely. Uh, I couldn't agree more. I think even more so for yourself at WBGO, I would think maybe there's a little pressure on you. You're, after all, reaching an audience that's at the universe of the jazz world uh, in New York. Uh, that that seems to be uh, the, the, I guess, the understood uh, capital of jazz in the world these days. And uh, do you feel like it's a little extra pressure for you to deliver the goods, so to speak? Uh, I'm kind of a type A personality <laughs> to begin with. So I feel like I always have an internal demand to try to do the best that I can do and be the best that I can be. But you are right. And I think the jazz audience in particular is discerning and they're educated and often very knowledgeable about the music. So that if you do make a mistake on something, you better believe somebody's listening and someone's going to take note and perhaps school you on a mistake you've made. Right? So there is, um, there is pressure to always do the best that you can do, to always represent the music the best you can, to always hold the music and yourself in the highest regard so that you're doing a service to the music. Because it is really a privilege when you think about, I think there's less than 10, 24-hour jazz radio stations in the world. So when you think about what we do is really unique and what we do is really special, and it's a privilege and an honor to be able to do it. So I think that's always at the forefront of, of what I do. You know, well, and there are not too many people, so that opportunity can always go. So you want to be able to do the best that you can for all those reasons. Well, you're at one of the best places in the world to do so as well. Even uh, this uh, past uh, few weeks, The Guardian uh, did a, uh, an article about the uh, 10 best music stations in the world, and WBGO was one of them. <laughs> Pretty cool. So that, that's yeah. quite awesome. Very uh, cool. So you're touching people uh, in so many ways. Speaking of uh, the music, uh, making a connection, uh, tell me about George Cable's The Mystery of Monifa Brown. How did that come about? What's the inspiration or the backstory there? First of all, you can't say the name George Cable's without bringing a smile to my face. Um, He is one of the most beautiful people that I know. And... To me, he really is one of those American treasures that I'm talking about who should be celebrated. You know, he's not only a brilliant pianist. Um, as a composer, I think he probably is one of the best composers creating modern jazz standards right now on the scene. You think about so many beautiful songs he's written, like Helen's Song or Morning Song or Mr. Baggy Pants. I mean, he's absolutely brilliant. And then you think about his history working with Dexter Gordon and R. Pepper and Freddie Hubbard and Woody Shaw. And then he's also a member of one of my all-time favorite bands right now, The Cookers, which um, if you haven't had a chance to 
see them, you know, check them out online or pick up their albums. I mean, I saw them fairly recently um, prior to the pandemic with um, Donald Harrison and Billy Hart. I think um, Billy Harper was in the band, David Weiss and Cecil McBee. So he pens a lot of the repertoire that the cookers play. So one day we were, I think maybe he had wished me a happy birthday and... I had said, oh, gosh, the, the perfect birthday gift would be a song from George Cables. And I said it not expecting a song. And lo and behold, he delivers my song. And it's a beautiful song. Oh, my God. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm still floored every time I hear it. To me, it's the biggest honor and the most flattering thing that could ever happen. A song from George Cables. It's incredible and I feel blessed every time I hear it. Do you ever hear it in the presence of uh, maybe acquaintances or family? Yeah, well, actually, um, I took my son and my husband. Um, I think my mom was with us when they were playing at the Jazz Standard, and he played the song, and I nearly fell on the floor, and my son was jumping out of his seat. So it was um, it's pretty exciting. I'll always feel that way when I hear that song, and I'm just so grateful to George Cables for even even writing it. I mean, what what an honor. An incredible honor from a really incredible person. Absolutely. Uh, to, for you to have made that kind of an impact on somebody, especially uh, when it's uh, put in the form of a song and a beautiful one at that. My hat's off to you, lady. You've done well. Thank you. I feel lucky. My name actually means that I have my luck. So I think that song is an indication it's true. I have my luck. <laughs> you obviously do. Uh, not only <laughs> do you do radio, uh, I, I think uh, a lot of our uh, listeners should know some of the other things that uh, you are involved with, uh, such as uh, Shanaki Entertainment uh, is uh, something that you is your daytime job. Would that be a, a good description? Yes, people have a lot of fun um, saying that name because um, it's a tough one, but it's actually Gaelic. And it means storyteller. Um, we actually started off as an Irish music label. We've been around over four decades, so that's no small feat for an independent label. And we started off doing a lot of world music. Um, we've done Lady Smith, Black Mombazo, Lady Smith and Black Mombazo, Nusrat um, Fatah Ali Khan, um, Soweto Gospel Choir, a lot of reggae through the years, from Rita Marley to Third World and Inner Circle, um, a lot of R&B um, from Denise Williams to Jody Watley. We've had a ton of people, R&B, gospel. Um, we're a very eclectic label. Um, we do a little bit of everything. We do a lot of contemporary jazz as well. And I, I guess I've been there almost 18 years. Um, I started publicity for a company called Shorefire Media during the summers when I was in school. In college, I would come home and actually intern for Shorefire Media. And at the time, and they still are Bruce Springsteen's publicist and Wynton Marcellus's publicist. And that was kind of my first introduction to the world of publicity. I had no idea what it was until then. Um, my first job out of school, I started working for DL Media, Don Lukoff's company, and they specialize in jazz. And we were primarily doing publicity for Blue Note. So imagine being out of school 
And I was working with Joe Lovano and Jerry Allen and Diane Reeves. And so that was a really incredible experience. Um, when Freddie Hubbard kind of made his comeback and did um, one of his first tours, and he was on Telarc, I got to work with him in that tour, and that was incredible. And that was also one of my first experiences where I learned you have to separate yourself from the individual and the professional. Because here I was a young kid working with one of my idols, you know. Those albums that he made with Woody Shaw were like some of my favorite albums and some of the first albums I spent my own money on. So it was like, oh my God, I'm working with Freddie Hubbard. But I had to learn that there's a difference between being the fan Monifa and the professional Monifa. (laughs) (laughs) So um, it was a a good experience. Um, So I started working for um, DL Media. I also, um, from there, I went on to... Festival Productions, which is George Ween's company. Yes. And I worked for a woman, Deborah Ross, who was the manager for the Carnegie Hall Jazz Band. So I got a chance to work with John Faddis and the band. And then we also produced um, the Mellon PSFS Festival out of Philadelphia. And that was a great experience. And then I went to work for... Colleen Grease and Third Floor Media, and we did a lot of stuff with, let's see, Warner Brothers during that time, and then also Verve Records, and then from there, I ended up working at BGO on Jazz Set, which at the time was hosted by Branford Marcellus before Dee Dee Bridgewater was the host, and that was an amazing experience, writing scripts and interviewing artists and producing and co-producing some of the shows. So that's kind of my path. And then from there, then I ended up at Shanaki. Well, Shanaki uh, obviously has led you to other things uh, and certain other publicist categories or at least uh, work duties and so on. W- would you see yourself as a publicist who happens to be a radio show host or are you a radio show host who happens to be a publicist? Oh, that's a tough one, Alan. That's a tough one. Um, <laughs> let's see. No I, that's a good question. I don't know. I've done. I've been blessed to be able to do both uh, congruently. So I've always done the both of them. Um, going back to when I was in school. So I kind of feel like I wear two hats, and both are equally important. Both feed. It's kind of like one's left brain, one's right brain. Um, They're both involve, I think, very different skills. When you're a publicist, you're definitely uh, a diplomat, right, and a liaison. I mean, you're a liaison when you're programming, too, but there's so many different hats you wear as a publicist. It's being the ultimate diplomat and liaison between your company and the artists and the press, between your company and the artist and the managers and learning the art of diplomacy is definitely a skill that you need. Um, multitasking, you know, we have, you might be working 10 projects at once, right? Yes. And you've got to keep all the balls in the air. So um, time management and learning how to, how to do that's important. And then keeping um, in touch with the landscape because as a publicist, Let's say, you know, I've done so much 25 years. It has definitely changed. When I started, I remember I had a coworker who was like, 
I'm on email, and I thought, what is this guy doing? He's doing nothing. He's sitting here playing games, talking about he's on email. Well, now as a publicist, people were barely using email in my industry 25 years ago, right? It was just starting to come into play. Now that is typically how you reach most media. I can't think of a major national TV show that I didn't book that wasn't primarily done through email. Right, so so much of your pitching and correspondence is done that way. When I first started, the media landscape was not as big online, and now digital online media is as, and in some cases, more important than print media. So constantly staying abreast of what the opportunities are and how the media landscape is changing and how best to communicate and pitch with certain outlets that research is always in development and always spinning if you want to be able to do the best you can for your clients. So there's a lot of different hats you wear within being a publicist. So, and, and, and having uh, what you just said about email and maybe some of the changes in how people conduct themselves now, what do you think the future of the music jazz might be, f- especially in light of what we faced uh, uh, in these past few months? Well, my first thought is jazz is a triumphant music, right? And it's a music that's been born out of struggle. So with that as a foundation, I don't see the music going away. But like anything, it evolves. So the way in which we're going to reach our audiences has to change and evolve. Evolve. So certain things will change. You know, we're not sure when venues are going to open up. Um... One thing is the music has been evolving and the way that we're reaching people has been evolving over time to begin with. You even think about record labels and how it used to be imperative in order to get your music out to the masses. You had to do it through a record label. How many indie artists are able to reach their audiences through their own channels now in a way that wasn't possible? So it kind of you know, evens the playing field. I think many jazz musicians are entrepreneurs, but we're going to have to be creative in a way. Um, You know, we have a number of large institutions that present the music, but not everyone falls under that umbrella um, and has the luxury of being presented and represented by large organizations that have corporate funding, right? So some trickle-down effect has to happen in jazz so that the average playing musician still has a means to to make a living playing this music. You know, education and the amount of artists who teach all opens another avenue, but even institutions not being open right now and many musicians having to do a lot of stuff, you know, via Skype or Zoom, that presents its challenges too. So I am not really sure. And of course I am concerned because there are many musicians that I know who are struggling and maybe they don't have the luxury of being affiliated with a large institution, right? In fact, most don't. That's not the average musician. So ensuring that artists do have a livelihood through this and after this and can continue to sustain themselves is a real concern. Well, but I so think I don't have all the answers, but I think it's something that all of us who love this music need to be watching closely and figuring out how we can support the average musician. 
I will tell you, uh, I love it, uh, having had this opportunity to spend a little time with you, Manifa, and uh, you are a, uh, a true uh, treat and a treasure. You, you are so deep in terms of experience when it comes to this uh, music called jazz uh, and working both sides of the fence. Uh, and uh, I, I'm sure that it is going to be individuals like yourself that will continue to uh, move us forward in the right direction. Well, thank you. And I appreciate what you do in bringing the music to people and your passion comes through. So I appreciate this opportunity to spend this time with you. Well, thank you very much. And I'll uh, continue to be a uh, listener of uh, WBGO and uh, especially connect with the Global Jazz Queen. I love that title, <laughs> by the way. How did you come up with that one? Uh, I don't know. It just came to mind. Um, I don't remember how I came up with it. It just seemed fitting. I just thought, you know what? I don't know anyone who's, who calls himself that. I'll just, that's what I'll just start calling myself, right? Sometimes you have to crown yourself, right? Yes. So I thought, why not? <laughs> well, Your Majesty, this has been time well spent with you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Let them have jazz. Uh, forget the cake. <laughs> yeah, jazz for everyone. Keep swinging. <laughs> Thanks, Alan. Thanks for listening to this episode of All That's Jazz with radio personality Monifa Brown. Our thanks to Ben Sidron for our theme song, Mr. P's Shuffle. Our next episode will feature Grammy Award-winning tenor saxophonist Wayne Escoffrey. To learn more about this podcast and to offer us your feedback, please visit our website, allthatsjazz.net.